Hey, this is Matt Stacy, youth pastor at New Life, and this is our podcast. I hope that the preaching and teaching you listen to here encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with God. This podcast is a ministry of New Life, and as such, is completely free to the listener. That being said, if you feel led to give to this ministry, we want to make that available to you. You can text GIVE to 833-793-0451. You can also give online through the Tithely app by searching New Life Tabernacle. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the message. Amen. Anybody believe that tonight? He is God alone. If you'll give me just a minute here while I set up. trying out new stuff tonight at New Life Tabernacle. Praise the Lord. We are in our 18th lesson of the book of Revelation. Chapter 9. The second half of chapter 9 we'll be studying tonight. Amen. Hopefully it's been edifying to somebody. Before we dive in, let's pray over this. Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to be in your house. Lord, we're so thankful for this opportunity to study your word. We're so grateful tonight. I pray, Lord, that you'd help me to teach in a way that you can anoint. Help me to say something worth saying to these precious people. Let the seed of your word fall on good ground tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Last week we looked at uh, chapter 9 of the, the beginning of chapter 9 of the book of Revelation. What we saw, what you're seeing now is new technology that is... Uh, We've got a clicker that's unable to work. There we go. Praise God. That's not going to keep happening. It's new, but it's going to work. Last week, we talked about the fifth trumpet. Amen. Let's just, let's just talk about it real quick. It's new, and, but I really feel like that if we can get used to this, that this is an extra element that it'll help our study of uh, the Word of the Lord adding a PowerPoint to it, and your feedback is welcome. So after the lesson tonight, anytime really after the lesson, you're welcome to come up, tell me if you thought that it worked well, if it didn't, um, and you're welcome to give me feedback. So last week we looked at the fifth trumpet, and what happened with the fifth trumpet, John witnessed an angel coming out, the angel blew the fifth trumpet, um, and was given a key, so the angel stepped forward. Brother Matthew, it's still not working. Angel stepped forward and was giving a key to the bottomless pit. He's working on it. Out of the pit comes thick smoke. Um, we talked about out of the smoke came a uh, horde, if you will, of demonic... Warriors, so it was not a not a comfortable time. Let's see if we're making progress here. 
No, sir. Oh, there we go. Praise God. Um, <laughs> the main issue is that I am, I am about 60 years old on the inside. And so, so that may be what we're dealing with here. Bottomless pit is unlocked. Smoke comes out. Out of it comes a horde of demonic warriors. We talked about how they were shaped. Um, they've got heads that had crowns of gold or what looked like crowns of gold on them. They were shaped like horses ready for battle. Um, they had teeth like lion. They had a face that looked like men, hair like women. Uh, they were wearing breastplates of iron and their wings sounded like chariots. So this was a very uh, scary, would be putting it mildly, looking creature that came out of the smoke, had tails that could sting like scorpions. What was interesting about this, uh, I was talking to a friend today, um, certain people that have a certain belief about the end time, they, they take these scriptures and they kind of water them down uh, in order to have hope through, like if you believe in post-tribulation, uh, and when you look at Revelation, and Revelation is actually supposed to be encouraging, but then you come across a scripture in chapter 9 where it says that out of smoke comes a creature built like a horse, teeth like lion, face of a man, hair long like a woman. Uh, he's got a tail that has a stinger on it, and he's been the, these demons have been given permission uh, to sting sev- people several times a day for five months straight. Not a good time, not a good thing. Uh, so the only way that that can be comforting is if you water that down or alternatively you believe what the Bible teaches and that is that the church is going to be raptured out of here before that takes place. Amen. So that's what we looked at last week. We looked at chapter 9, the beginning of it, fifth trumpet blows. They're faced with this demonic horde that comes out and maybe the worst thing that happens is an angel comes after the five months is is passed and an angel says announces that was the first woe and there's two more to come so that may have been the most terrifying aspect so you live through one of the most horrifying days uh, that the world has ever seen the horrifying five months that the world has ever seen only to have an angel come out and tell you that it's only going to get worse. Tonight we're going to look at the rest of chapter 9 and we're going to see two things. Number one, we're going to see that it actually does get worse. Um, It actually does get worse. Number two, we're going to see uh, the, to put it bluntly, the depth of the wickedness and depravity and rebelliousness of mankind. The heart of mankind is ever wicked and increasingly wicked and one of the most, I think, some of the most shocking scriptures we're going to get into um, tonight. Before we do that, let's read chapter 9, verses 13 through 15. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed which were prepared for an hour, 
and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of man. So, what happens here, John witnesses the blowing of the sixth trumpet, the next trumpet of judgment. As he blows, as the angel blows this trumpet, John hears a voice, and the voice uh, tells the angel, an angel, gives him a command. He says, go loose the four angels who are bound in the Euphrates. So, trumpet is blown, four angels are loosed, and the question has to be, who are these angels? Always a good question to ask when you're studying the book of Revelation. You need to know whose side uh, the angels are on. Um, we have a clue in Scripture, and it's always good to look for these. The clue is they were bound. Good angels are not bound. Angels that are on our side are not bound. These angels had been bound um, for a... Only God knows how long they were bound. Scripture doesn't tell us. But they were bound and are currently today, that means, bound as we speak at the river Euphrates. So these angels are not good angels. Uh, they are demonic angels, wicked angels, uh, if you will. They're fallen angels, and they've been bound for a purpose. God's going to set them loose at, a, at His exact time. We'll talk about that in a minute. This is the river Euphrates. This would be where the Bible says that they are currently bound uh, right now. And we're going to talk about that. So, some people, whenever they study the book of Revelation, again... If you hold to one kind of view of the book of Revelation, then you have to find things like this and you've kind of got to allegorize it, make it symbolic and not literal. We'll talk about why that is. This is located near modern day Iraq. Interestingly enough, Chuck Swindoll, he noted that this particular part of Revelation literally centers around the Middle East. Uh, why is that interesting? Because... Um, if you had studied the, the, the book of Revelation, if you're an early Christian, let's say in the 1700s or 1800s, and you're studying the book of Revelation, uh, what are some significant things that are going to be missing at that time? Israel's not a nation. Um, the Middle East isn't uh, as big of a deal then as it is now. Um, so if you're studying the book of Revelation in the 1700s and 1800s, you're going to be tempted to look at this and try to allegorize it or make it symbolic of something that it's not instead of taking it literally. So they would have struggled. That would have been a legitimate struggle. Today, though, when you think of the Middle East, you think of a ticking time bomb. It's not hard to believe that end-time events are going to be centered around the Middle East of our day. And then we have the rise of Israel. We have those that are surrounding Israel who hate Israel. Very easy for us to believe. The point here is time always vindicates God's Word. So you may look into the Word of God and you may say, I don't understand uh, all the details here. I don't know how this could make sense. You know, there's a scripture that says that everyone in the entire world are going to hear the same message at the same time. And you, and for thousands of years, theologians have studied that and they, Brother Jeff, they, they didn't know how that was going to work, how that was going to happen. How can that be possible? Surely the word of God is missing it there. 
Fast forward to 21st century, and with a click of a button on a device, you can send the same message to everyone around the world at the same time. We can all watch it together. Time always vindicates God's Word. It doesn't deteriorate God's Word or take from God's Word. So we believe that they are literally bound uh, at the... Go back for a minute. We believe that they are literally bound right now at the river uh, Euphrates and that they're going to be released at a certain time uh, that only God knows. Something I found interesting that I love, not just interesting, I love it about verse 15. Read verse 15 again. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared, catch this, for an hour and a day and a month and a year for, for to slay the third part of men. I love this. What does this teach? God knew the exact hour, the exact day, the exact month, and the exact year from the beginning that they're going to be loosed. He's got it planned. It's not going to catch him by surprise. He's in total control. This is God's timetable. We can't get things down to to those minutest details. In fact, uh, in our walk with God, we often question God's timing. We wonder if God has forsaken us sometimes. God knows where we're at. If God's forgotten us. God has a timetable and everything works exactly perfectly according to His plan. He loosed these angels exactly, or he, I say loosed in the past tense, these, this is future. He will loose these angels exactly when He intends to. Not one second earlier, not one second later. It's already planned. Again, what does this teach us about God? So when we're studying Revelation, you've got to identify practical things for us today. This is one of those practical things. What does this teach us about God? It teaches us that His timing... Let's go back here. It teaches us that His timing is perfect. God's timing is perfect. It's like that song that we sing... uh, Even when we don't see it, He's working. Even when we don't feel it, He's working. You have to trust that God's timetable is perfect, that God's timing is perfect. So you can't see how things are going to work out. You're looking in the world, you're reading the news, and it's easy to get distressed, and you you don't understand what's going on. Uh, It's hard to find peace in your soul. Well, it's, it's hard to find peace in your soul if you don't understand that God's timing is perfect. But if you understand that everything in the world is happening according to His timetable, it's, he's literally going to get glory out of everything that is happening that gives us peace in our heart and our soul. I don't know about you, but that gives me hope. It gives me peace. It gives me courage to understand every day things happen according to God's timetable. Amen. Let's look at the next three verses here. Four verses. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000, thousand. And I heard the number of them, and thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and brimstone, and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three were the third part of men killed by the fire, and by the smoke, and by the brimstone, which issued out of 
their mouths. So you've got to ask a question whenever you're coming to this. And this is a question you've got to ask frequently as we study the book of Revelation. Is this symbolic or is this literal? Now, I'll just tell you. Theologians have twisted themselves up in the pretzels trying to find this particular scripture. And when they read that, what we just read out of the Word of God, Brother Chad, they see tanks, and they see fighter jets, and they see modern warfare, and they say that, you know, those things that are just there, that can't possibly be actual, um, so that has to be symbolic, so we're going we're gonna to read this stuff into the text. I'm sorry, but you can't, you can't find that in the Word of God. And what's fascinating, Brother Kendall, is all my life I've been taught, I shouldn't say taught, I've heard that you can find these things predicted in the Word of God, you know, tanks and, and that kind of thing. But when you read what we just read tonight, I don't see that at all. I think that John knows what a horse looks like. And he looked at the creature that he was seeing, and the closest thing to describe it was a horse. Now, if he had seen a tank, obviously, Brother Jeff, he'd never seen a tank before. So that would have been hard for him to explain. But Brother Kendall, I don't think that he would have looked at a tank. I don't think that anybody would look at a tank and think to themselves, you know what? That's a horse. And I think I'll put, I'll put that down in time immemorial. <laughs> I don't think that John made that mistake, and maybe I'm giving John too much credit. I don't think I am. He's inspired by the Holy Ghost as he's writing here and what he's seeing. Um, but so we're, we're going to, if, if that is your line of thinking, uh, you're welcome to it. I don't believe that's a heaven or hell thing, um, but I'm going to stick in with trusting the Word of God because I think we can believe it. So when you ask, is this symbolic or literal? Obviously, you know my opinion on that. Uh, the reason... For people saying that it's symbolic, one of the reasons is not just the creatures, but this number is outstanding. It's actually the largest number in the entire Bible, 200,000,000. And what that comes up to today is an army of around 200 million. Now, people have looked at that number and they think, well, it's impossible for humans to muster that kind of number. So, again, this number must be symbolic. Or, alternatively... It's possible that this army, uh, as we saw in the first part of chapter 9, is a demonic uh, army that is going to come under the command of the four angels that have just been loosed. That would be mine. So is this symbolic or literal? Scripture should always be taken literally unless there is a clue in the text that suggests otherwise. And uh, I believe it was in chapter... Yeah, it's in chapter 9, first part of chapter 9, we talked about it. A star fell from the sky, and he was given a key to the bottomless pit. Okay, what is that doing? Scripture's giving us a clue that it's not a literal star, but that star is symbolic of an angel that was given the key to the bottomless pit. Scripture will always clue you in to what is symbolic and what is not. You don't have to try to use your imagination and uh, so forth, and uh, create things. So we believe that this is literal. This is one person's um, rendering, if you will, of what they would look like 
I'm telling you, I am thankful that I do not have to, that I will not be one of those that have to deal with the creatures that are coming under the control of those four angels. John describes here, as I just stated, it's another demonic army. Horses with the head of a lion are going to, uh, are going to come forth. The riders are going to be wearing armor, armor of uh, fire, jacinth, and brimstone. Out of the horse's mouth, which really it's interesting, the creature there, the horse-like creature is actually what the focus is of this passage because uh, the devastation is wrought by them. Out of the horse's mouths is fire, smoke, and brimstone. Uh, it's like a plague. And this plague is going to uh, wipe out quite a bit of humanity, as we will see in just a minute. Their tails uh, are like serpents, and they also have heads on their tails, and their tails are giving power to kill. What's different about this uh, group of demonic uh, soldiers and the demonic soldiers that we studied in the first part of chapter 9 in the first part of chapter 9, we noticed that they were told right from the beginning, you do not have permission to, to kill anyone. You have permission to torment. God gave them permission to torment, and they did. They tormented for five months. This demonic army, however, is told they have permission to kill. And kill they do, as we will see. This is another uh, rendering of it, a little more clear. Uh, because you can see the snake tail coming out of it. Um, we don't know that that's an exact representation. Obviously, that's most likely not an exact representation because John was doing his best to just describe what he saw. Um, what we do know is that it was terrifying. And so they come out. They're given power to kill. Fire, smoke, and brimstone come from the horse's mouths, and it kills a third of humanity. Now, again... Um, writers look at this and they see fire, smoke, and brimstone. That's got to be the bullets that are, you know, coming out of the tank. The problem is, is you could have quite a few tanks, uh, together, but to kill a third of humanity, that is something special. Um, that's a lot of tanks and a lot of people that get wiped out by those tanks. So we're just going to trust the word of God here that what's going forth is a demonic army. Out of the mouths of these demons is a plague of sorts of fire, smoke, and brimstone, and it ends up killing a third of humanity. What's fascinating about this is at this point in the tribulation, now again, people that are of a certain persuasion when it comes to the book of Revelation, they try to water this stuff down. A lot of them actually say that the bad stuff isn't going to happen until after the seven years of tribulation, and they separate it, right? And they, and they say the last part is the wrath of God, and that's the really bad stuff. But I'm here to say that at this point in the tribulation, we're not even through three and a half years yet, and according to Scripture, over half of the population of humanity has been killed at this point. They've been sent to meet their maker, to meet the creator. I would say that this is the most devastating time the world has ever seen. And if this is not the wrath of God being poured out upon humanity, then I don't know what is. I would, I trust the word of God here. So we've got this, we've got this army that has gone forth. Let's look at Revelation chapter 9 verses 20 and 21. 
I'm moving pretty quick tonight. Brother Stacy said, uh, one great thing about me using PowerPoints was it's going to slow me down. And to that I say, ha, I shan't be slowed down. Amen. Verse 20 and 21. If I'm going too fast, I do apologize. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, there it is in the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord calls them plagues. I trust the word of the Lord. We're not going to look at this symbolically. We're going to look at this literally. There's a plague that's gone forth and uh, has killed a third of humanity. Now, this is, to me, some of the most tragic portions of Scripture in the entire Bible. I kind of believe that the most tragic would be when King Agrippa tells Paul, you almost persuaded me to be a Christian. But this, of course, has got to be one of the most tragic. God has been pouring out His judgment, His wrath upon humanity. And as we've talked about this entire time, what is God doing? God is pouring out His judgment, but at the same time, He's got an open hand of mercy. And people are going to be saved during this time. And He's allowing them to come forward, to repent, to make things right, to serve Him. And as we see right here, even after all of the devastation, even after all of the torment, there are people that still refuse to repent. Let's read it. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. Unbelievable. When you look at this, it's hard to fathom. It really is. Truly it is. It's hard to fathom the devastation. Think about things that our world has experienced. Two world wars in the last 150 years. We've witnessed several plagues. We've seen genocide take place, not only in World War II, but even recently over in Iraq and Afghanistan. We see terrorism take place. There's all kinds of evil that is loosed in our world today. How many remembers where you were when the Twin Towers were hit? I know exactly, some of y'all were not alive. The young people were not alive, but... I know exactly where I was, and I know the fear that, that hit my heart as a child. I remember uh, sitting there with my parents, wondering what was going to happen next, if the rest of America was going to fall apart. Absolute. I can remember the fear that hit my heart. Now, we're getting so far away, there's revisionist history that is being written even as we speak, Brother Jeff, that make it to where it wasn't as bad as the, the, some of us remember it being. But it was awful. Did you know that there was over an 80% increase in all of America of church attendance? The next service available right after the Twin Towers fell? Fear gripped this country. But I'm here to say, 
as afraid as they were, the Twin Towers falling is nothing compared to what the world is going to witness when God pours out His wrath upon humanity. And I don't want to be anywhere uh, near when this is happening. But even after all of this is poured out, the Bible says that there's still people that refuse to repent. There are still people somehow that refuse to come to God. All of his wrath being poured out, all of his judgment, and what happens? His heart just becomes hard. It reminds me of Pharaoh, right? You read Exodus, God pours out his plagues, his judgment upon Egypt, and every time Pharaoh hardens his heart against God and against the people of God. And it doesn't, and there came a point, Brother Chad, where even his, his advisors were coming to him and they're saying, listen, it's time. Like, you've got to let the people go. And Pharaoh's saying, absolutely not. Harden his heart against God. In the worst time in human history, there are going to be people, in fact, the Word of God suggests that it's the vast, vast, vast majority of people are going to harden their heart against God. It's here that we get the clearest picture maybe in the entire Bible of the depth of depravity and wickedness and rebellion that is inside of the human heart. We have to understand that the human heart is desperately wicked and in need of a touch from Almighty God. That's why self-help books, they're great, but they can't fix the ultimate problem. That's why you can watch all the motivational videos and try to become a better person that way and do good, but it won't fix the ultimate problem. We have a sin problem in the heart of humanity that can only be touched and cleansed by the blood of Jesus and by the Holy Ghost. And we need it and we've got to have it. And so here these people, after everything, refuse to repent and instead they stay in their wickedness. And I know that it's a popular belief, right? It's so popular today. It's a popular belief that everyone, there's something inside of every heart that wants to be right with God. But the truth is far worse than we could imagine on that scale. It is not true that there is something inside of every heart that wants to be right with God. This scripture proves that there are people that no matter what God does, even to the point of judging the world, they will refuse to turn around and get right with God. The truth is simply this, that there are those that are not hungry or thirsty for the things of God and they have no desire to be right with God. And so what can we learn from understanding this about humanity? Understand that there are going to be King Agrippa's, people who cannot be persuaded, will not be persuaded, even by the likes of the greatest missionary to ever walk the earth, the Apostle Paul. Paul did everything he could do. He gave him his best pitch, if you will. And in fact, Paul, if you read that scripture, Paul believed that King Agrippa was going to convert. He knew it. He was excited about it. And then King Agrippa throws him that curveball and says, you almost persuaded me. Almost, but I'm going to go and do my thing. There are going to be King Agrippas in our lives. 
There are going to be Judases. Think about this. He was the treasurer of the group. Brother Jeff, who do you trust with your money? (laughs) I don't trust hardly anybody with my money. Jesus trusted Judas. He He was in tight. He sat and learned at the feet of Jesus. There are, what does this teach us? There are going to be people who could even sit and learn at the feet of Jesus, but they were going to refuse to change their ways. They're going to refuse to go God's way. And they're going to betray the Word of God. There are going to be people like that. That's what this teaches us. It also teaches us that the very fact, and I want to make this so clear, I don't believe in total depravity. The, the, the doctrine of total depravity is the idea that, uh, that we, we are so lost, so sinful, that we can't even pursue God. I don't believe that. I believe in free will. I believe that when God called all men everywhere to repent, that we all have the option then of repenting. We have the willpower to repent and get right with God. I just believe that there are people who will refuse. But along with that understanding, can I just stop right here in the lesson and say, the fact that you are here, the fact that you are hungry for God's Word, the fact that you're thirsty to learn more, to hear more, to be closer to God is a miracle. You're a walking miracle. Because there are going to be those that on the worst possible day that humanity could ever see will refuse to get right with God. And yet here you are. You've been found by the grace of God. You've done what's right, been baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost. You're in the church triumphant, and it's by the grace of God. And that's something that you ought to be thankful for. So you can read this scripture, and you can get depressed, and you can say, well, that's just terrible. How's the church going to triumph? How's revival going to be happening if half the world or the majority of the world will never turn to Him, no matter what, no matter who it is that tries to win them? no matter how many soul-winning seminars that I attend and how well I sell it to somebody, there are going to be people who just refuse to convert. You can look at this Scripture and get depressed that way. Or you can look at this Scripture and you can give praise to Almighty God. And you can say, Jesus, I am so thankful that I'm not one of them. I'm so thankful that I've chosen you. I'm so thankful that you bought me with your blood, that I've had the blood applied to my life, that I've been filled with the Holy Ghost, saved and sanctified. I'm grateful today for the goodness of God. The Bible says that it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. It's the goodness of God. You know what the problem is with the people that are lost in the middle of the revelation? They can't see. They refuse to see the goodness of God. But you know what you've done here? You saw that you were a sinner in need of a Savior. And you recognize the goodness of God. And that's why you're here. You made the choice to be here. And I think that God deserves praise just for that. I think we ought to be grateful and honor Him and give Him glory and praise for the fact that you're here. 
And you can look around and you can be depressed. Well, so-and-so is here, not here. And so-and-so lost out with God. And, and, and it should tear you up. And you should go to prayer over the lost uh, loved ones and lost friends. But you should also be grateful and never miss a day of being grateful that you're here. That you're saved, that you're trying to live for God. That there's something inside of your heart that still wants to do something good for God. We ought to be grateful. We ought to lift Him up. We ought to praise Him. In the tribulation, there are going to be those that hold tighter than ever before to their sin. The Bible mentions their sins. says they're going to continue to worship devils and other idols. It says they're going to refuse to repent of any sin. The sins that are named is murder, sorcery, fornication, and theft. Those are the sins that are specifically named, but the, the point is that they're just unrepentant. They refuse to repent. It means that even though the, the worst of the worst is happening, they decide that they're going to just go on their merry way, and they're going to continue like they've always done, and they're going to refuse to acknowledge God. So what can we... What else can we take from this? It's not only true that they're going to serve idols in their day, it says that they're going to continue. Which tells me that even today, and we know it to be true, even today there is idolatry worshipped. So that tells me that it's, it's an issue in every age. It's not just an issue for the Revelation chapter 9. It's not just an issue for the Great Tribulation, but it's an issue for us today. It's easy when we read the Scripture to assume, well, that's just them, but it's important as we study Scripture that we also use Scripture as a mirror and we check our heart by Scripture. One writer puts it this way regarding idolatry in our day. He says this, he says, idolatry in our day is not so obvious but is just as real as it was in John's day. By definition, idolatry is turning an earthly thing into a god and worshiping it rather than the God of creation. Whatever we place ahead of God in our lives is our idol. Therefore, the modern world is replete with idols. Money, possessions, power, pleasure, sex, success, fame, drugs... These can all be used as tools of Satan. And there are countless stories in which these very things have tortured and killed those who pursue them. We must warn people of the cosmic powers in control of this secular world and call them to God. The music wants to come. And y'all want to stand. I'm coming to a close. I want to ask, make a statement, and then I want to ask a question as I'm closing tonight. The statement is, I like that definition of idolatry. How do you define idolatry? I think we can define it as anything that we have placed higher in our life than Jesus is an idol. Anything that we are given more credence, more love to, then Jesus is an idol. The question I have tonight, and I have it even for myself, because I'm going to take time after this is over, I'm going to find my place to pray, because the, the preacher is not above anyone else. 
the question tonight, are there any idols that you would like to cast before Jesus' feet tonight? When would the last time be? Now again, I just got done stating how grateful I am. Did you know that you can sear your conscience? You can get to a point where you're not convicted by anything anymore. I'm saying that you ought to be grateful tonight that you're still here. And part of that gratefulness, part of that being thankful to God, is taking an opportunity like tonight and checking your heart. And saying, God, would you check my heart with me? Would you reveal some things inside of my heart that need to change? I wonder if tonight we could find a place to pray and we could examine our hearts. We could ask God to search deep within us. If there's anything inside of us that has taken the place of Almighty God, then it needs to go. If Jesus is coming up second in our lives in any way, those things have got to go. I wonder if tonight we could find a place to pray. I'm done. Let's find a place to pray and let's talk to God about that.